Welcome to Influential She, the podcast about accelerating the influence of women in the world. You will find us to be a fresh voice in an old conversation. And here we are, your amazing co-hosts, Deb Soholt and Mel Shop. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Influential She. We're excited to come to you from the Joshua Tree with a couple great guests. I'm your co-host, Mel Shop. And I'm Deb Solholt. And today we just have a couple of extraordinary guests. We're just really excited to introduce them a minute. We're going to talk about a story that really has a traumatic and interesting thing that happened, but yet around it, some amazing things came to light. But I think what's so interesting about Story Mel, and you and I have talked about this a lot, is that we really describe and define our own story. And it's not really even the story that you just tell other people about you. And many times we talk about women holding back from the power of their story because somehow it feels like, well, maybe I'm bragging or maybe I'm saying too much. But it's also a continual story that you're telling to the inside of yourself. I'm good, I'm bad, the judgment. And so this practice of story to develop that and mature it really makes a difference and influence. Yeah, and they just sometimes don't match up. It's easy sometimes to have a story that is sometimes told to others that might not really reflect what's happening inside. I know that we both talked about going through that in our lives where the outside persona didn't always match what was the inside persona. And the story was really important for us to be able to share. And that's why this is such a great opportunity today for us to talk to these two amazing women. And important for us to reconcile that it's an authenticity story. Mm -hmm. And so really the inside of you and the outside of you, you know, and everything that we talk about is the more authentic you become, the more you really reveal your full story to the world, the more influence you have. And you're happier because you're not trying to pretend to be something that you're not. So super excited to introduce our guests today. They're married and just so dear to each other. I want to introduce Jenny Q., and Mishkin Warbler, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you. (laughs) We're just so glad that you're here. We're so glad to be here. A dear friend made this connection and introduced us, and we're just really excited to bring your story to light. I think what's interesting is that, Jenny, you are a registered nurse, and you also own and run, and now with Mishkin as well, two apothecaries. One is called Grateful Desert, which is in Joshua Tree, California, and one that is Grateful Rain in Astoria, Oregon. And that you are doing potions and lotions that are just so wonderful and magical at the cell level and really are into the world of healing people. And so we're going to talk about that just a little bit within your story. An equally talented and business partner with Jenny is Mishkin Warbler, who is a musician, has done the most incredible singing and playing, and has produced works of art. Her CD and book that goes along with it, Trust in the High Wire, is just breathtaking. And so just want to welcome you to the show again. Mishkin, we're so glad that you're here. Thank you so much. So, so happy to be here with you. Okay. So we're going to kind of go into the middle of the two of your story, because something extremely traumatic happened. And we're going to start off with Jenny, just talking about what happened to you, because it was a very critical event where you came very, very, very close to losing your life. So why don't we begin there? Because then there's just so many elements around that story that we need to get out and talk about with our listeners. Mm. Well, thank you both for having us on. It feels really good. And I just wanted to say that the energy that you two 
have really draws us and the work that you do. So thank you for that. Mishkin and our story start in Joshua Tree when she is on tour and we meet. And it was real quick, six months of dating long distance. And when she moves in, two months after she moves in with my daughter and I, I have a minor procedure done. So 24 hours after that procedure, I was very sick. And 24 hours after that, I, I fell into a coma. Our daughter was at the time seven and we are very attached. And Mishkin then takes me into the hospital and I have a blood pressure of 55 over 24 or something like that. I mean, basically I was in shock and Mishkin not knowing anything about the medical world at all is kind of dealing with all of this stuff in a community that she really doesn't know that many people. Anyway, I slip into a coma and the long and the short of it is I'm gone for six months in an ICU unit and Mishkin is now up in the middle of my community with my daughter, who now is our daughter, but at the time was a brand new relationship. And I was running an apothecary. I had a little rental on my property. There was just a lot going on that Michigan was flopped right into the middle of. And she, uh, <laughs> she stepped right in. And my story is our story, but it's also a story of community. Because this, uh, this community that I had lived in at that time for 15 years really stepped in. They saw what was going on. They saw that Michigan was just not running like most people would and surrounded her and Yazzie, our girl, and held them while Michigan rose up to support me and all that was around me. Well, Jenny fought for her life for six months. <laughs> but there's that. <laughs> so Jenny, I think you need to tell us though that what this resulted in, I mean, the sepsis and the other pieces, the enduring of what you had to deal with has been the next part of the story that is really pretty powerful. There's a lot I don't remember, of course. I was only in a coma for six days, but there are months that I don't remember. But I do have flashing memories of looking down to see the nurses trying to find a pulse with an ultrasound and not seeing anything. I do remember one time moving my finger a little bit forward while they're trying to turn me and everybody erupting in the room and applause and crying and I remember trying to feed myself Cheerios, trying to learn how to pick up my hand again. And I have so many flashes that were excruciating and also beautiful. I ended up going into uh, DIC, which means my vital organs were not getting blood. So they were giving me a lot of medications to shunt blood to my vital organs. And in so doing, losing um, blood flow to my extremities, I lost both of my legs below the knee. I lost five fingers and internal organs. I was in kidney failure and I was in a lot of pain as well. I was also living in an alternate reality. They were giving me so many drugs, of course, because they were trying to mitigate all of this pain. It was really like a couple of years later that I was asking Michigan questions and realizing that some of the my memories are actually just the alternate world that was going on as well. You know, Michigan, I think I read this and might have also watched a short clip where you said they told you that she had a 10% chance of making it, but that was not really... <laughs> True. I, I mean, tell us about them. Well, I remember in the first days when Jenny was still in the coma, her brother really trying to prepare us for the seemingly obvious fact that she wasn't going to make it. And her odds got a little better once we got her to, to UCI. 
it was touch and go for a really long time, actually for months. And there were many times when she almost didn't make it. Sometimes they would give us 10% just to keep our hopes up. So Jenny, let's just talk about this a little bit. You have just moved to Joshua Tree, Michigan to be with Jenny. Your daughter, Yazzie, doesn't really know you all that well. You're, you're newly engaged as a couple. I think you got engaged like in November and this happened to you um, the next January. So now you have all of this family coming in and accepting multiple levels of understanding, thinking about how are you two connected? Like, how do you fit? Then also the medical decisioning. And Jenny, you talked in the beginning about what was obvious to my community that supported me, that Michigan wasn't going anywhere. Like she was going to stay with the program. So maybe start with you, Jenny, just a little bit about your family and kind of their consideration of your relationship. And then Michigan, if you could weigh in on how did that feel from your side, like this story happening right in front of you where you're just a major player in the story of her life? Well, Michigan had met my sister, who's a doctor, and I think she was the first on the scene. But my family all started immediately coming in the middle of the night when they heard that I wasn't going to make it. Honestly, I was so sick, I don't really remember. But I, the story is that I kind of roused from the coma at some point and said, oh, look, my fiancé. And I announced this with all of my family around. And, you know, my parents are very, they're Arab, they're immigrants. It was uh, uncomfortable for them, uh, to say the least. And so just announcing it like this with a room full of doctors and family, I didn't have to deal with the fallout. Michigan maybe did. <laughs> but to me, I was also on a lot of uh, medications at that point. You, you might have to tell them, Michigan, was I, uh, had I already been in the coma and was I roused? You had, you had, this was right after uh, you had come out of the coma and then been moved to UCI and you had been flown there or flown halfway there and they hit a fog bank. So then driven the rest of the way in the ambulance and your, your family had arrived at the hospital before I was able to. And by the time I got there, they were all around you. And I walked in and you said, my fiance. And then you, you turned to your mother and said, sorry, mom. (laughs) 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 And then you were pretty much under again. I guess I had something to say before I had to go back. (laughs) Pretty much. So, Michigan, what was that like for you? Oh, well, I mean, of course, I was in shock, (laughs) just kind of moment to moment dealing with this situation. And I I did have the beginnings of relationships with uh, some of Jenny Sibs at that point. So they were very open to me being there. I had met her father and he was kind to me as well, but it was hard on her mom. And, and so we spent many hours in a room together, her mom and I, and not speaking very much. Wow. <laughs> it was, that was difficult. You know, the other thing though, that is so obvious in your book and in many pieces that I read, you had this amazing community support. I know I read in one place about the goddess healing circle for Jenny and, you know, as community, these woven strands of heart that it's really quite unusual that had to be sort of the piece that also pulled it all together because Michigan, I can't imagine you coming in if you would not have had that outside sort of rallying. And then, yeah, I just, I would really love to hear more about that. And then, you know, Jenny, how you really felt that that was part of the whole healing process. I definitely had my support system as well. My my siblings 
uh, came to support me and, and Yazzie in the beginning and my mother. And then I had some friends there helping us out. I really felt like there was support flowing in from all over the world, like all these people that we knew in our lives that were just located everywhere were sending the strongest energy our way. And I, I viscerally felt that as this web of light that was holding us and keeping us safe through this experience. I, I had moments where I felt that as an actual physical thing. You know, the nurses at the ICU said, I've never felt like we had a post office here before, but because all of these cards and letters were coming in, crystals and packages, but people saying, I don't know you, but I have a friend who's in a prayer group with this person from all over, not just this country, but the world, just sending prayers. So there was literally this web that was starting from our community and just weaving outwards. And it really was powerful. And at times the doctors were telling my parents and Michigan, this is no longer a medical issue. There's no longer a medicine keeping her alive. And this is something I've thought a lot about in the last couple of years during COVID is that the reason we were able to be held so strongly was that here was this one trauma happening in this web of health, you know? And, and now we are in this situation where so many people have been sick and, and hurt. And it, it, it's like that healthy amount of web around isn't there. Isn't able to be there. I mean, they kept making allowances for multiple people to be in the ICU room because, well, because my parents wouldn't have it any other way. But we've been talking a lot about people with COVID not even able to have their spouses there. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would have made it if I didn't have my loved ones touching me and talking to me and, you know, supporting me in that way. You know, for our listeners, there's an amazing book that has been written by Jenny Q called Held Together. And it's really a reflection. It's like vignettes from different perspectives about what was happening. And there was a person that wrote in your book, Felicia, about like a witchy gathering. And I think it really speaks to this, this web of energy that you're talking about amongst people because she wrote that in addition to the physical world of a loving family, friends, the medical staff around her, she was being looked after by a whole pack of powerful human beings and loving spirits interweaving between realms. And I think you're alluding to that. And I think this is something that when Mel and I talk about the influence of women, we feel women so many times underestimate themselves about the power that they bring and how they can be this healing force for good, both in spirit and in presence and in mind. And so many times, the loving and nurturing that we're doing for like our immediate family, we underestimate the power that we can have to bring that forth in the world to many others. What do you think about that? And how did you feel that? I know that you had men and women in your circle, but talk a little bit about really the women that stepped up. Well, we are surrounded by powerhouse women for sure. I mean, we surround ourselves specifically that way. That has been my whole life. Yeah, that I... Even as a little girl, I always fancied myself the protector of girls, and as I grew into a woman, the same. And so our daughter, Yazzie, was really raised by a pack of wild women. <laughs> it's pretty, um, pretty <laughs> awesome. And we do love our men, but you know, our, even our friends would call our little neighborhood the E-Town. You need a ticket for Estrogen Town. <laughs> <laughs> because oh, that's there's wonderful. A, lot, a lot of women around, always. Yeah. And we also dedicate ourselves 
to healing and support of each other and also to help each other change perspective on what is going on in our lives. So I have a few very close friends who we talk often, if not daily, about what is going on in our lives. And then we can reflect back how we see our friend and how we can help change how they see their reality so that it empowers them. And this is very much how I've lived my life, calling my store Grateful Desert, Grateful Rain, really is a testament, not just because I love the Grateful Dead, but also because I live in gratitude. But also, after this major life event, I have to, I hold on to seeing the opportunity and the beauty of what happened because, A, it makes me a stronger and, well, juicier human And I happen to love being happy. (laughs) I work hard to find joy, to grow in joy in my life. And that really comes from looking at your life and changing the way you see it if you need to, if you need that support so that we can see how we can grow, how it looks to keep the beauty around us and grow into ourselves as stronger beings. You know, Jenny, I know that you. it wasn't like you got out of the hospital and then like, okay, now... I mean, you had a whole new thing to adapt to. I was reading, like, not only did you have some withdrawal from, I'm assuming, six months. So you put that on top of now dealing with having to learn how to walk again and do all those things. And then Michigan, you had to be there to be this rock to try to get her into this whole new environment that was foreign to both of you. I mean, the relationship was still relatively new. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because it wasn't just like... You know, you flip a switch and now it's like, okay, we're back to normal because nothing had to feel real normal. Leaving the hospital was one of the scariest times for me because we had been surrounded by all these medical professionals that were in charge and taking care of things. And I was just kind of there. And then all of a sudden I was the only one (laughs) taking care of things. And Jenny saw me kind of melt down. She had a friend of ours come and help several days a week. With respite care. Yes. Yeah, respite Mm -hmm. care. And then she also, after a certain amount of time, decided to go be at her parents' house for a while and give me a break and give her sidewalks to learn how to walk. In the six months that I was in the hospital, I had, I think, 51 surgeries that I was under general for, and then many surgeries in the six months after that. And I know, Michigan, I saw right in front of me, she was just melting down. So I called our dear friend, Kristen, and it had to be someone that was dear because they were literally carrying me into the shower and, you know, having to change my wounds. But the darkest moments for me out of all of that was detoxing from the opioids. I was on maybe five or six opioids constantly in the hospital. I was on a fentanyl drip and and Dilaudid and um, morphine and methadone and all of it. And I did not put in my rational brain how hard it would be. I'm grateful. I think that was a survival technique because I'm a nurse. Also, I've lost friends to opioid addiction. But it was three months of very dark times. And at that time, my friends, my girlfriends who would just come and sit with me, they had to hold the light for me because that was the time that I couldn't hold it by myself. And I couldn't see, even after the hospital, I could live in the light, I could see the light. But during those three months of detoxing uh, was uh, rough. (laughs) Jenny was determined pretty much as soon as she got out of the hospital to start weaning herself from all the drugs she had left with. I mean, when we left, she was on... I don't know, like 15 different pills a day. And um, she was determined not to live that way. 
Right. I'd say, okay, today I'm not taking that one. Poor Michigan. She'd be like, but I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm done with that one. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then the last one was a methadone. You've been through an extraordinary thing. And you talk about that there's been PTSD feelings of this trauma, like for both of you. And then how you're still living, you know, these multiple surgeries, multiple general anesthesia, recovering from the medication, the pain addiction that happens in the brain. You know, you had to have pain control, but then all of a sudden it takes a hold at the cell level. And yet combined, all of a sudden, you're talking about living a juicy, beautiful life and surrounding yourself with light. And in your book, a woman named Sue talked in her chapter about Keep Her Here, that she was in a meditative state. And somewhere in the middle of the night, she said, she came to realize that it has to be her choice. So many times in the story of our own lives, we don't realize how powerful we are in the choice we just need to make to have it unfold in a way that we know is good for us. As many people as can surround you in community and support you, at the end of the day, it's about you. Talk a little bit about some of those choices you had to make for your story and your life to keep moving in a, in a direction that gives you joy. I feel like I didn't ever choose anything but living because I had my baby that I wanted to be there for and my new love. And I have a lot to live for. And I did that. I mean, that choice to live, no other option was there for me. Now, the choice to be joyous was every day I chose because I did not fight that hard to come back and be angry or bitter or depressed or, you know, and, and don't get me wrong. I've had lots of all of that stuff, maybe not so much bitterness, but certainly anger and frustration, sadness, grief, and anxiety. And still I have anxiety. You know, I still deal with PTSD, basically responding to small things with huge reactions, but the choice to always step into my joy and light, because that's not just for me, that's for the people around me too. I don't want to choose to live and then make their lives a burden. But as far as my work goes, you know, I came out of the hospital kind of a hot mess and um, I was not much more than 80 pounds at the time. And I wanted to step right back into business. You know, it was very weird having my life being lived by other people, my business being run by other people. It was just all very surreal. And right after I came out of the hospital, I decided I was going to be in charge of the work meeting that week. And I'm sitting there in the room and everybody's looking at me like, I don't really know, but what I kind of can imagine they're thinking is, what are you doing here? And, you know, get back in bed. And um, I learned very quickly that I was not ready. I was not ready to step into the life that I was so eager to reclaim. I remember the first time going back into my lab to make tinctures and I was still without any legs, just in my wheelchair and, and how much I cried at how much I missed it and also how hard it was. But over the years I have, you know, now I, I work my lab by myself again and, and running the store with Michigan and I could definitely choose to be at home always. I have every excuse in the world to do that, but that is not what, what brings me joy. Michigan, what about you though? I mean, there had to be moments when you just thought, what in the world? I mean, I can't imagine. The first day Jenny was in a coma, I, I made a promise to myself and whatever powers that be. And it, it's never felt like a choice since then for me. It's, it's just what is, you know? But I watched Jenny make the choice every day to get up <laughs> and, and do, and do joyfully. Like I, 
she calls me the little devil on her shoulder a lot because I'm always urging her to rest more <laughs> and to, don't go into work today. I'll, you know, don't do that. And she's like, no. And she's really the most determined person I've ever even heard of, much less met in my life. Tell us more about Yazzie. I'm so curious how she has weathered all of this because we all know that our children are, they deal with things in many different ways. And she was young, you know, when all this happened. Even as a baby, people called her, as a toddler, you know, they called her Velcro because she would not leave my leg. We'd be at a party with all of the friends she grew up with. They'd be running around and she'd only play with them if I went with her to play with them too. (laughs) Um, And we were always very, very close. And it's just her personality. Lucky me that she just was always wanting to be close. So when I left, just from one day to the next, I was just gone. It was very hard on her, as you can imagine. It would be hard on any kid, and for my kid in particular. And her personality kind of shaped in a way that was surprising to me, that she didn't actually go to, say, my sister, because she was close with my older sister, or somebody there in Joshua Tree who she's known her whole life to say, I'm scared. She just didn't. She was saying, I'm fine, I'm fine. But when I heard that later, I knew how not fine she was, that she couldn't even Mm -hmm. reach out. Today, as a 16-year-old, she is the most caretaking of a young woman that I have ever met. I mean, her friends call her to say, hey, I'm not feeling well. Can you help me find a ride home? I mean, you know, she hears a book drop from, I could be upstairs and her on the other side of the house, and she immediately is right there. Are you okay? And like, that really hurts my heart that she's grown up having to feel that she has to be that way on one hand and on the other she blows our minds about her gigantic open-heartedness and she's sassy and she's a 16 year old and you know, all the things, you know, and if we do choose before we come into this life, some of the big events to kind of what we will, how we will grow. And sometimes I really have to sit there because otherwise I would feel just not had it easy. Um, but boy, she is a strong one. You know, one of the things I want to ask you, Jenny and Mishkin is, um, in your book, and I think this is really important to the stories that we tell, you were talking about dig and dig and dig to the roots. When you talk about how to live an authentic life and how to be in sincere relationship with others. And some people are giving you some advice about, you know, just kind of play nice, don't argue. And you were like, how do we live without disharmony? Because if we don't have some disharmony, you know, I want to dig and dig and dig to reach the deepest truth. Talk about that between you, because I think sometimes we want to candy coat our story when really it's in the digging that you get to the juice. So talk a little bit about that between the two of you. I just want to laugh and say, Mishkin, it's amazing she didn't run just because of who I am, <laughs> let alone all this stuff, because I think that you had an adjustment, Mishkin, to how I, I made you talk to me. You know, you'd come in, I could see something was going on and she would not want to go there. And then finally she would sink in and later she would say, thank you. And that was often. And I don't think I have to encourage you anymore to do that. What do you think? Not as much. (laughs) (laughs) It is definitely something I've learned in our relationship is how to open up. I've often done most of my communicating through poetry and not face-to-face. Talk just a little bit more though about why that was so important to you in the journey of your life of wanting to dig deeper? Uh, I kind of was born without a filter. I never quite knew how to just go about things 
the way other people, I, I'm one of five. I'm, I'm the middle child and I am the middle child. And I just never knew how to kind of go the middle kind of balanced path. I was either all in or I was just not there at all. So for me, it really was within my relationships. If I wasn't really knowing the truth, I don't want to say it's not worth it because I do have acquaintances, but I think I actually bring it up in people too. Somehow people come into my store and they cry and then they say, I don't know why I'm crying to you. Like, why do I cry every time I come into the store? I think I energetically invite it because to me, that's the juicy part of life is, you know, if you ask me how I'm doing, you're going to actually get the story. <laughs> I am tired and bitchy today or whatever it is. I mean, I, I just, I think part of it is my culture, but my personality, I don't know. What do you think, Mish? You definitely do this for people energetically and welcome them. Just looking at people right in the eyes and people often have commented in my life, like, you're just right there. Your eyeballs are right there. You know, and I, I think that because really, let's be, you know, maybe it's not altruistic. Maybe it's just that that's what makes me happy is getting to the depth of people. It's the interesting part. I came out so many of the reflections of people in your book. I mean, it was just how open you are and this person who just draws them in and draws out, whatever. But the other big overriding thing of this whole story is about this amazing, powerful love and support you have for each other. You know, you can even see it in our conversations with you. You can feel it. But it is really core to your story, I believe, in such an interesting way because it was, you know, the event, and I hate calling it that, but I don't know what happened, was truly, it could have just completely undone it. But wow, the power of your relationship and the love that you have that kept you together at that point, but has gone on. It's so core to this whole, this whole story. That thing about not having a choice for me is really just about this feeling I've had for Jenny since I met her. I've just really haven't had a choice, but to do everything I can to mm -hmm. be by her side. So it is really, somebody called her Bodhisattva. And it is true, the devotion that Michigan has is really mind-boggling. And it just feels like it has to be this way. It, it, we desire it. But I couldn't imagine it any other way to be this deep with this human being. With the connection between the two of you and around an event and continued events because of your surgeries and all of these things, and yet the two of you persevere because you choose to in this joyous way. So what kind of advice would you give to other women to really claim themselves, to really step into their own story and to live at a level of authenticity like the two of you have chosen to do? What little nuggets could you share to help them see that that's possible for them? One thing we started talking about and something we've thought about a lot, I've thought about a lot as an artist my whole life, is how art transforms events and how definitely that's something that we did with this part of our lives is, is transform and create the meaning we wanted to create from it with the tools that we had at hand, which were writing and music and performance. And, and everyone has different tools for that stuff and for how they can shape their story into something that makes sense to them and gives meaning to their lives instead of something that is just this chaotic thing that takes over their lives. That people have choice, that we can, we can choose to be a victim of 
things that happen to us, or we can choose to take what happens to us and make them our food, <laughs> our compost to grow into. We call it not the event, but the adventure. <laughs> For a while, we called it the mountain <laughs> that we had to climb. But I like the adventure because it has been arduous and beautiful. And what comes up for me now, seven years later, is really just having the courage to be authentic to what you desire instead of putting things aside or thinking that you're not big enough or strong enough because life is short. And I know that this is cliche, but it is true that, you know, if we can find the courage to do one thing towards what we ultimately desire every day, that's it, one thing, and getting us there so that when we lay down to die, we feel like, yes, we did. We did do those things, those things that we desire to do. I don't want to leave this without just acknowledging the things that you're doing in your life right now, which I think are still fascinating. I know that music is still a huge part of this. You're apothecary. I think it's great to share with people that you have this great life that's happening within that. Just if you can talk a little bit about that, because I, I just think that's really fascinating what you continue to to do and to give back. Yeah, uh, well, we were called to come to Astoria uh, when we were on tour here, actually. We were touring a, a performance piece that was based on the book and the, the record uh, that was based on this event. And um, we stepped out of the van in Astoria, and Jenny and Yazzie and I all just kind of looked around and said, hmm. Yes. And then Jenny, <laughs> yes. Jenny worked really hard over the next year to figure out how to run Grateful Desert from afar and get us here. And and after a couple of years here, we decided to open Grateful Rain. And it's been really amazing. So about a year after we got here, I chose to bring on two of my dear friends, employees turned dear friends as owners. And we chose Mishkin as well, because she's wonderful with, you know, digital stuff. So now there's four of us, uh, two in the desert and two up here running our two stores. And we own the stores together, share in the work, share in the profits. It's really a beautiful model. We still play music. I am very lucky to be able to play with Michigan's band. I play cello. She's so amazing. I just feel honored to get to play with her. Well, you know, we could just talk and talk and talk. And to everyone who's listening, just really encourage you to go onto the website of Grateful Desert and Grateful Rain. These tinctures that Jenny makes, we've had the opportunity to sample some of them and they're just extraordinary and the purity and the way to have oils and aromatherapy become a part of helping to keep a person whole and strong and a strong immunity. And also to listen to Mishkin's beautiful artistry and her music and the words and the poetry that she sings about. It's not just how she writes it, but in many ways, hauntingly sings about that really reaches in and grabs you at a soul level. So thank you so much for being on this show. We're just really grateful that you took the time out to share in conversation with our listeners the powerful influence that you can have through the story that you tell and how you've highlighted it's the choices that we make about living this finite life that we have in this space in a way that captures who we authentically are and what our dreams are all about. And your advice to take an action step every day, whether that's in, I want to be a kinder person to this person, or I want to be more open, or I want to, it's, it's about taking your dream of how you imagine who you are and starting to realize that on a daily basis and telling yourself the inside story 
of how beautiful and wonderfully created you are and the gifts and talents that reside within you, the world really needs. The world really needs these powerful influences, especially now more than ever. So thank you so much for being on the show. And to everyone who has been listening to Influential She and those of you that consistently tune in, we are just so grateful that you do. It's our mission to really unleash the influence of women in the world and to have that accelerate in a way that makes a powerful difference. And so today, I want to leave you with this question. Are you telling yourself a powerful story about you making choices on a daily basis that really help to unleash your most authenticness into the world, even if that's not a word, so that it can be felt by others? It's in the little things and the big things that you do. Don't wait. Thanks again for tuning in to Influential She. We hope you'll do it again. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed our podcast, we'd be so jazzed if you rate us on whatever app you use to find us. And hey, be sure to tell all your friends about Influential She. And please visit us at InfluentialShe.com and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. And you know what? If you come up with a new one, please let us know. In the meantime, remember, stay influential. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at teachbetter.com slash podcasts, and we'll see you at the next episode.